Let me, uh, let me echo what Chris said about the family meeting, not only that the food's good, but that we really do encourage you to come. Uh, even if you don't have children, we're grateful for your input, and uh, we are, of course, in this together. But uh, we're, we are, again, going to have a brief sort of business portion of the meeting here in the sanctuary directly at the end of the service, um, and we'll just allow a minute or two if you need to, to head out uh, to get a kid or, or take care of business. And then uh, after a few minutes here, then we'll go into the fellowship hall, grab a, uh, some uh, food on the way in, and then we'll have a discussion that uh, Chris is going to be leading for us. Um, everybody is uh, welcome to that. So if you're a member of New Hope, certainly if you're visiting or if you're considering being a member, we encourage you to come and to uh, sort of see the seamy underbelly of our operations here. Um, and that'll be right after the service. So, um, and the drinks are cold. I put them in the fridge back like on Thursday or Friday, so they really, they should be fine. Um, so, this week, being such a beautiful week, I was drawn to Psalm 19. You may remember this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of Yahweh are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of Yahweh are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So the heavens declare the glory of God. This is a black marker, which is the one I was looking for. This is, in a nutshell, the doctrine of general revelation. Anybody ever heard that term? General revelation? Has nothing to do with military officers? General revelation is the idea that God, through the very creation he's given us, reveals to us something about who he is, what he's like, what's important to him. The, the, the idea is that God is God, right? Y'all tracking me so far? Okay. And we are human beings, many of us with poor drawing skills, and that God being God and we being human beings have a little bit of a communication issue, right? In part... Because if you remember the story that we were telling from back in the beginning of Genesis, because of human rebellion, we were separated from God. 
But also because God is God and we're human beings and the, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. That's also there in the Bible. Uh, in order for God to communicate to us in a way we can understand, there has to be some sort of translation. There has to be some way in which what he reveals is revealed in a way that we can make sense of it. Thank you very much. So there's general revelation, which is the, the very nature of things. And there's also special revelation. Theologians speak of general revelation, and they speak of special revelation, right? And there's a sense in which God has given us these two books by which we understand him. Special revelation is uh, the Bible, and then general revelation is human conscious, conscience, consciousness, human history, creation, the very nature of things. And we're called to understand God by means of both of these. He communicates to us by means of both of these. He reveals himself to us by means of both of these. He is in relationship with us through both of these. And so sometimes we find ourselves working a tension between general and special revelation, between what we find in the world that we see and what we find in the Scriptures. This morning, our passage gives us one of these times. If you will open your Bibles to the book of Numbers. The beginning of Numbers is a continuation of the story we have been telling as a reminder, God's people were in Egypt. They're going up to the promised land. That's up here. They were in Egypt, which is here. And for once, I'm going to remember to draw the Nile in blue because it's a river. There's the Nile. Bunch of lakes here. This is probably where that whole crossing the Red Sea thing happened. And then this is the Sinai Peninsula. Eventually they're going to be going up here to the Promised Land. Later on in Numbers, they're going to be hanging out around here, wandering in this area here, around Kadesh Barnea. But right now, at the beginning of Numbers, they're where they were at the end of Exodus. They're where they were through all Leviticus, right? Where was that? Jesus is not the answer. Where, where were they? In the desert, yes. Uh, in fact, that's the, the name of this book in Hebrew. The name of Numbers in Hebrew is Bamidbar, in the wilderness. But where specifically are they at the beginning of the book of Numbers, throughout all of Leviticus, at the end of Exodus? Where in the desert? Sinai. They're at Mount Sinai. Now, we don't know exactly where Mount Sinai was. <clears throat> Probably somewhere down around here, but we'll just put that there. They're at Mount Sinai, where they are receiving the law. They're receiving Torah from God. God is going to get them set up to be a nation, all their own, in the land he's going to give them, having taken them out of slavery, which is where they've been for 400-some years, he's going to give them specific regulations about how to live, how to be a functioning society, how to have a government that actually works, uh, about how to take care of the poor and the needy, how to make sure that there's justice, due process. He's telling them about how they're going to worship him, uh, gives them specific instructions for building the facilities for that, identifies who's going to be involved in that. So all this stuff is being communicated uh, there on Mount Sinai. 
right? And that's where they are here at the beginning of Numbers. So now, this being the book of Numbers, we're going to get some numbers, right? Yahweh spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and family, listing every man by name, one by one. Literally, do a head count. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men in Israel, 20 years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. I will spare you the list of the temporary census employees. So these were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. And Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been given, and they called the whole community together. On the first day of the second month, the people indicated their ancestry by clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, as Yahweh commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. And he counted, and he counted, and he counted. And then at the end, these were the men counted by Moses and Aaron, And the twelve leaders of Israel, each one representing his family, all the Israelites 20 years old or more who were able to serve in Israel's army, were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. I'm going to put that number up in red. 603,550. Now, that's 603,550 men of fighting age. That is, men 20 years old or more. 603,550. Which would put the total population of Israel, if you count men under fighting age, if you count women and hermaphrodites, you find yourself with a number somewhere around 2.5-3 million. All right? Not all right. A little bit of a problem with the 3 million number. One problem with the 3 million number is that was, archaeologists tell us, probably roughly the population of the entire nation of Egypt at the time. Major superpower. Very unlikely, even though the uh, Egyptians were worrying that the, that the Israelites were becoming numer- too numerous for them, that, uh, that, that a, a nation of slaves in a couple of Egyptian storehouse towns had gotten themselves up to the same size as the entire population of Egypt, right? There's one problem. Uh, Another problem is that the total population of the land they were going to at the time, somewhere in the neighborhood, again, archaeologists figure, of 150 to 180,000, right? And as we're going to see, as they're on the eve of getting into the promised land, they go there and they say the people are too numerous for us. The people there, are, in, in some cases, the people there are too big for us. They look like giants in our eyes. We're going to find out. We're going to get that later. But it's difficult to see how 3 million people would find a population of 150,000 too numerous, right? Plus, we also have Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's army went out and chased the Israelites. Anybody remember how many charioteers there were? Anybody, any other fans of the count here? Anybody like the numbers? 600 chariots, Right? You got three million people. I don't care how many arrows and spears the guys in the chariots have. Three million people are going to be able to take care of, of 600 people in chariots. So, we seem to have a bit of a problem here, don't we? <clears throat> now, we've got a few options as to what we do with this. 
right? One option is we can say, well, clearly this is what God said. And if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. So we can, if we wish, try to defend this number, which is an option, right? Look, I mean, if God can make manna come down from heaven, if he can bring water out of rocks, if he can make quail fall down, as we're going to find out, to feed his people... If he can create the world out of nothingness, if he can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, if he can find me a wife, he can do this kind of miracle. He can sustain three million people in the desert. Can I get an amen? Amen. Right, okay. So the defenders would say, well, look, God said he did it. What's your problem? Other people are not going to be satisfied with that, and they are going to deny. Obviously, this could not happen. In fact... There is an entire school of archaeologists, they're known as the minimalists, who believe that this whole story of the Exodus, everything we read in the Torah is just made up, that this was actually uh, stuff written by these Israelites as they had uh, migrated to the land from uh, having been in Babylon, and they're basically trying to justify their own existence and their own claim to the land. So they're just making stuff up in order to justify their story. There are some people... So the extreme minimalists believe that this stuff was made up uh, just a few hundred years before Jesus. Now, that's very unlikely and very difficult that, to, uh, to justify that. But very serious scholars and archaeologists are saying that this stuff was made up a lot later. And as we're going to see, mostly next week, uh, I think that's a hard claim to make. And actually, we have good reason for believing that this story is about what happened when, when it happened and that it, its origins do come from the time when it's said to have happened. But uh, one way to do it is to deny that. And then usually when you deny that, that means you're also taking that attitude toward other things you find in Scripture that don't seem to make sense, right? Like Jesus being raised from the dead. Like Jesus being born of a virgin. Like the miracles where people are miraculously healed or brought back to life or where God provides miraculously for his people in the desert and elsewhere. So that's one approach, is to deny it, to deny it or to defend. Those are kind of the hard edges of our response to this kind of situation. Has anybody ever been exposed to people who deny or defend? Anybody at all? Right? There's, there's, a, sort of, there's a sort of brittleness to it. I, uh, there, there's a... a, a I, I think people who do these, who take these approaches, are, are trying to do so with integrity, right? I mean, because somebody who's going to deny this says, "Look, God's given us general revelation." And there are people who, you know, b- believe in God. They just say, you know, clearly what we're reading here can't be right because that you can't do that, right? Archaeologists have found evidence of people, and they have found not evidence, and so, you know, it's really it, it, based on what we know. Reading the Book of Reality, it's just hard to make sense of what we find in Scripture. Right? I don't think God wants us to shut our brains off, they would say. The people who defend it say, look, God's given it to us in Scripture. And if you read this, it, this is definitely somebody who is trying to give us a census. Right? I mean, this is not, you know, there are places where you get round numbers thrown around. 
Uh, they're, you know, like in, in, in Revelation, for example, you've got these, you know, numbers like 144,000 that are probably highly symbolic because you've got multiples of numbers like 12 and 1,000 um, where, where, you know, it's, it, the, the, there probably is something being communicated other than exact specific numbers, precise data. But this reads like a census, doesn't it? Right? I mean, this, the, it, it seems like whoever is giving us this information is trying to give us some kind of specific information. So uh, the folks on this special revel- the defense side would say, look, God's revealed this to us. Right? The word of, you know, what do we just read about in, in, in Psalm 19, right? The Torah is, is pure, it's perfect, it's blameless, it's faultless. But I think there are a couple other ways that we can deal with this kind of difficult passage. And it is difficult. I don't want to minimize at all the difficulties involved. But there are a couple of other approaches. One is uh, what I will call uh, to try to resolve to try to resolve the differences. Maybe maybe it's a paradox, right? Where there is a way to reconcile the two where you can resolve the paradox. So one way that, that we might be able to resolve this, incidentally, has to do with that very word that is translated thousands, right? It's the Hebrew word... Uh, Elif. The Hebrew word Elif usually is translated thousands. Right? In fact, the translators of the Old Testament into Greek back in the second century uh, or so translated this as thousands. Right? They thought that this meant thousands. But uh, there are some other things that Elif could mean. Elif could actually refer to uh, a, a, a military unit. Right, or it could even refer to a military captain, somebody who would be in charge of that kind of unit. Like, for example, the the uh, Latin word centurion from the Roman Empire. You know what a centurion would be? Anybody guess? Captain of a hundred. Yeah, century is a hundred. Right. So a centurion is somebody who's in charge of a hundred guys. Right. So it could be that rather than saying that there are uh, from the tribe of Ru- Reuben, for example, in chapter uh, 1, verse 21, the number from the tribe of Reuben, Reuben was 46,500. Maybe what he's saying there was not that it was 46,500. Maybe he meant that there were 46 military units. That is 500 people, Right? If you kind of work that out on some of these, it seems like some people had sort of bigger units than others, which is just kind of the way God made us. But we have 46 units, 500 people. If you work that out, you end up with about 20,000 people. The problem with that is that it does at the end say we've got 603,550, right? So if this is what happens, then what that means probably, and this 603,000 number shows up at a couple other places in Torah, what this means is in a very, very early stage of transmission, a very early time when this text was being copied and copied and copied, which is how it gets to us, uh, at some point somebody said, look, there's a math error and I need to fix it. 
We get this all the time, by the way, in the New Testament. The nature of the New Testament documents is, is that, uh, that we, you know, we believe that the autographs, the original text that God inspired, is inspired, right? At one point, somebody named Paul sat down and wrote, or in his case, probably he, he uh, dictated to a, a secretary, a letter called Romans, right? He wrote this letter to Rome, sat down, dictated it, cranked it out, and then it was sent to Rome. Over the years, that letter got copied and copied and copied, and copies of the copies were made. And over time, you get little differences creeping into the copies. Sometimes because people were operating with very little light, sometimes because people were tired, sometimes because people were writing down what they heard and different people heard different things, and sometimes because people are stupid. People skipped a line, or they repeated a line, or they missed a word, or sometimes because people thought they were being helpful. Right? They saw a word and they thought the grammar was wrong, so they corrected it. Actually, it was right. They just didn't know it was right. Or they saw a word and they thought the spelling was wrong and they corrected the spelling. Actually, they shouldn't have. Or they saw something and they said, oh, there's a verse missing here. We should put that in. That, you may have noticed when we said the Lord's Prayer, right? That end part, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, probably not in the original. Right? Actually, here's a place where the Catholics are more Protestant than we are usually because they leave that out. Right? So in the, in the oldest and best manuscripts of the Lord's Prayer, that's not there. But that was probably part of the way that that prayer was prayed in Christian congregations early on. And so very early, somebody started writing that in. And it's like, oh, somebody must have left it out. I'm going to put it back in. Well, maybe they didn't leave it out. Right? The nice thing about the New Testament is we have evidence of this, like you would not believe. We've got I mean, 5,000 manuscripts in Greek alone. You take the other ancient languages, 25,000 at least fragments of manuscripts. And we can, be, by comparing all these different manuscripts, we can get a, a really good idea of what that original would have been. Because, you know, you, one type of, of error or change creeps in over here, another type over here. You get these families of manuscripts. The problem with the Old Testament is that we don't have that kind of diversity in the Old Testament manuscripts. New Testament manuscripts... Some of those go back to, you know, 100, 150 years after the originals would have been written. But the Hebrew text that we have, for the, the Masoretic text, was fixed sometime probably in the 10th century or so, A.D. Now, that's one of the reasons having that Greek, the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament from the 2nd century would have been popular among the Christian church. That gives us a, a, a peek at what that text would have, been, would have been like at the time. There are some differences between what you find there in the Greek text from the 2nd century and what you get in the Hebrew text that comes to us from around the 10th. And those differences probably have to do with the fact that over centuries, as things get copied, as they get uh, 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 transmitted, as they are moved on down the road, sometimes stuff creeps in. The good news is... There are very, very few places where there is some sort of problem like this. They kind of stick out like a sore thumb, to be frank. There are a few places like this where you say, you know, there seems to be something that's not right there. And often it's because something doesn't seem right that somebody may have tried to smooth it over in the past, right? You ever tried making, like when you make a, a cake and you see there's a little problem with the frosting someplace and you're going to try to fix that? <laughs> then you created a much bigger problem, right? And then you've got to try to fix that. The next thing you know, you've got like a, a half a box of toothpicks jammed in sideways in the back to try to keep the whole thing from falling over, and you just want to make sure you get the picture and get a couple pieces cut so that, that it doesn't all fall apart. Right. So, 
That can happen sometimes with transmission of Scripture as well. Again, the good news is we have uh, an abundance of documents in, uh, for the New Testament to help us with that, not as much with the Old. So one way to do this is to, you can deal with this apparent problem, this tension is to say, well, I can resolve it by saying, you know, there's, uh, that, that word LF was just read as the wrong word. That was read as thousands, should have been read as a military unit or referring to a captain. There's some problems with that. One, as I mentioned, is the, what the numbers total up to. Another is that this, what, this approach doesn't work for the next chapter where, we, where the, the Levites are tallied up. Right, the Levites being the tribe that was, was committed to the, to the worship of God, to carrying the tabernacle around and taking care of the implements of worship. Uh, th- that, that, that's not going to fix that problem. Although, as we see in the text, uh, in verse 47, the families of the tribe of Levi were not counted along with the others. So there's a different way of counting them. The Levites didn't fight. Right? The Levites were not fighting people, so it would make sense that a military uh, census would not make sense for them. All right. So that's the re- Are you confused yet? No? Dang it. I was, ah, should work harder at this. Another way that we can deal with this apparent tension is that we can receive it. We can receive this tension. And rather than trying to defend it, right, rather than, than, than putting up our guard or trying to eliminate it, or trying to fix it and make it all work, we can simply say, you know what? Yeah, that's there. It's kind of hard for me to make sense of how the both of them work. But they're both there. And maybe I need to be patient and allow God some time to work out how I'm supposed to understand that. See, this... Tension between general and special revelations doesn't just exist in the mind of an individual person sitting there looking at a, at a verse in the Bible. No, I mean, it does. It's there. But this is also something that we see, unlike my... Oh, there it is. There's my black marker. This is something that we see among other people. Right? You're going to have that problem, too. you got a fat person with that problem. Right? In community, though... Right, we can work out this process of receiving it and sometimes of resolving it. This is what is known as community, right? Or tradition, right? Because we're not the first people to try to work through this stuff, right? So we look through what the church over the years has done. We look at the work of scholars. We, you know, reading the commentaries on numbers. Basically, everybody has said, you know, look, there was this one commentary that was written back in the first decade of the 20th century. Commentators very seldom say this, right? They said, look, this guy hit the ball out of the park and everything we do is basically because we're standing on his shoulders. (laughs) I assure you, I read a lot of commentaries. Very, very seldom will a commentator say that something written 100 years ago is really the, the, pretty much the last word on most of this stuff and now we're kind of working off of him. But in this case, in the case of numbers, actually, yeah, there was a, a gentleman named Gray, Dr. Gray, wrote this commentary that is pretty much everybody accepts is the right one. But on other things, the debates are, are uh, active and current. And uh, in fact, the archaeology on this is developing in the last 10 or 20 years. Some archaeological fa- finds 
uh, in Sinai have helped us to get a better sense of what the likely paths of migration might have been. I mean, they've, they've been digging around and found some old Egyptian forts in this area that uh, have helped us understand why the Israelites might have had to go south, why they wouldn't have taken the northern route, for example. Um, this stuff is going on now. This is, this, is, this is like real time. And, you know, part of the problem with this is you may have noticed if you picked up a newspaper any time in the last 60 years, um, this is fairly disputed real estate, right? So after the 1967 war when Israel, Israel had control of the Sinai, it was a lot easier for archaeologists to dig. They did a whole lot of that as long as they could, and then Israel gave the Sinai back to Egypt. Then things got a little more challenging, but there's still some work going on there. So that's part of this process of us working on this now. How do we receive this? Not just trying to resolve it, not just trying to make all the equations even out, but to say, yeah, this is it. How do we deal with this? Because the reason why I think it's important to look at this is that usually the result of taking a defensive posture is that people then tend to deify the text. Basically, they make the text God rather than God. The problem with denying is that people then tend to defy the text. I think the history of the last few hundred years amply demonstrates that the instinct to deny something that you find difficult in Scripture eventually tends to lead in very short order to that movement defying what is in Scripture. And if you want... I can uh, connect all the dots for you on that, but uh, basically, um, once you start throwing things into question, then you usually tend to find other things that are questionable. Generally, the things you question are the things you don't like. Maybe it's just me, but if I'm going to take the attitude of denying stuff, I can tell you right now a bunch of verses I'd like to deny uh, and then defy, but I don't feel like I got that freedom. But to resolve... I think, and by the way, for those of you who are new, I almost never do this whole thing with the alliteration and stuff. So when I do it, either I'm really desperate or I think maybe there's something to it. Uh, if if we're going to resolve, uh, then what I think we can find is a feel a sense of of reconciliation. We can feel like we've been sort of reconciled to the text. There, you know, we we find something that's difficult, and, and we find this this sense of, of disconnect. Right, there's a, a, a sense in which there, that can be reconciled if we're able to find some resolution. Right, there, we can we can kind of make some peace, and by receiving, we find that we are able to be in relationship with the text, and most importantly, with God who inspired it and who wrote it. Again, this may just be my experience, but being in relationship with people means that I have to receive them as they are. No? Anybody else? Right? I have to receive them as they are, and I relate to them as they are. And they have to relate to me. They have to receive me as I am. So being in relationship requires that we accept, that we receive people. And so there's a sense in which for us to approach the text in this way, for us to see this tension and to feel it and not to immediately either throw it out or stand guard over it means we can work to resolve it, but we also are going to work to receive it. Both of these are good, resolving and receiving. 
because they lead us to reconciliation. They lead us to relationship. And all of that is something that we get to do, not just as individuals. All that is something that we get to do together in community. Because don't lose sight of the fact that this whole story, right, this whole story is about God calling out a people that has a specific responsibility, a specific mission, and has partnered with him in the work of cosmic reconciliation, where he is bringing all of creation back into relationship with himself. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that there are things that we find very, very difficult about your word. And we confess that there are times when it would be easy for us to take a shortcut, to, to find ourselves in a, in a place where we're able to just dismiss it. Or alternately to stand guard, put our shields up, put up our dukes. We confess that it's easy for us to do things like that. And that in our flesh we often want to. We pray that you would give us the courage and enable us to be diligent to work to resolve those things that can be resolved, to not immediately throw things out that we find difficult, but also to be willing to sit with the tension, to be in relationship with that text that you've given us, that you've called us to receive. We pray that you would enable us to do that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, whom you pour out so abundantly on your people. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus, who made that possible. Amen.